This is Sam. This is Paul. This is Ivan Bao. And this is Southpaw. Hey, and one more thing. If you love the show and want to support us, go to patreon.com slash southpawpod. Every Facebook group and message board that I've seen start out as free speech and rational civil discourse have all turned into Nazi shit shows. And when I say Nazi, I'm not being hyperbolic. I mean straight up policy proposals for a white ethnostate. I don't think people realize what happens when you treat all sides as equals and humor and excuse everyone. Centrists aren't the smartest in the room. Often, they're the most naive and sheltered. To centrists, taking half a bowl of ice cream and adding half a bowl of shit will make an ideal ice cream, when in fact, a bowl of ice cream with even a little bit of shit is no longer ice cream, but a full bowl of shit. This is why I wanted to bring on one of the creators of the Leftist Gaming Club to talk about the need for leftist spaces for hobbies and interests, and also the thought process in creating and moderating a group. And to help you better navigate this episode, I'm going to give you two quotes. They will set the context for certain sections of this episode. Quote, First, I must confess that over the last few years, I have been gravely disappointed with the white moderate. I have almost reached the regrettable conclusion that the Negro's great stumbling block in the stride toward freedom is not the white citizen's counselor or the Ku Klux Klanner but the white moderate who is more devoted to order than to justice, who prefers a negative peace, which is the absence of tension, to a positive peace, which is the presence of justice, who constantly says, I agree with you in the goal you seek, but I can't agree with your methods of direct action, who paternalistically feels he can set the timetable for another man's freedom, who lives by the myth of time, and who constantly advises the Negro to wait until a more convenient season. Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Quote, The end cannot justify the means, for the simple and obvious reason that the means employed determine the nature of the ends produced. Aldous Huxley Today on the podcast, we have Ivan Dow. He is one of the creators of the Leftist Gaming Club on Facebook, as well as a co-creator on the Red Plateau's YouTube channel. Hello, Sam. So you are talking to me from Norway, right? Yes. A little bit outside of Oslo. What made you and your co-creator decide to make the Leftist Gaming Club? Well, there wasn't really a, a leftist gaming club at the time. Early left books started with like clashes between anarchists and anarcho-communists and stuff like that. 
Can you explain to people what Left Book is if they are not familiar? It's a constellation of uh, leftist Facebook groups, fairly mindful of stuff like intersectionality and keeping the space for and by leftists throwing out liberals uh, so that we can talk about theory and talk about stuff like that. So you said at the time when you guys were looking into it, you guys were first just like, oh, maybe it already exists. Let's just join it. But then in your search, you found that it didn't exist or you already had an idea that it didn't exist? Uh, yeah, we'd been doing Facebook groups for, for quite a while before then. Uh, so uh, Leftbook sort of boomed during the whole Bernie Sanders uh, uh, Trump thing. So I joined anarcho-communism then and a bunch of other groups and then got involved with moderating eventually. And when you say anarcho-communism, do you mean just a group for that? Or was it like the anarcho-communist cinema club? Or No, so that that, that is sort of, a, uh, that came out of that. Uh, it spawned a bunch of different groups. It ended up being a fairly dramatic group. It generated a lot of offshoots and drama. <laughs> and it's interesting that it sounds like that group had a lot of members. Uh, yeah, so... Around the time I started, it, it, it had maybe around like three and a half K members, but then it just exploded and grew exponentially uh, over the year. So why I said I find that interesting is because in real life, when you talk to people, they've probably never heard of that term, anarcho-communism, yet online, yeah. <laughs> it has one of the biggest left book presences, maybe at the time, but is this proportionately big on Facebook or online than it is in real life? So why do you think that is? And also, what is it? So if you come to socialism from a liberal background, you're going to have this kind of implicit critique of uh, the USSR, etc. And it's probably not a very good critique, but it's like uh, a fairly ingrained skepticism. But Anarcho-communism is at the same time explicitly communist, right? So I think part of it is that it's so clearly a break with both like the, the usual liberal capitalist tradition and the old school ML Soviet communism kind of thing. Uh, I think that's why it appeals to a lot of people online. It became kind of a safe space where it's like, we can't congregate together in person and we can't talk to people about it in person because they're going to shun us. So we have to escape to the internet world. Yeah. And like uh, the fact that you don't have to necessarily be uh, like a 70s ML. Uh, when you say ML, what do you mean? Uh, Marxist Leninist. So for people who aren't familiar, what is the difference between anarcho-communism and regular communism? So fundamental to anarchism is the idea that your means have to be in line with your ends, uh, rather than the idea that the ends justify the means, right? So where it differs from just like, say, Marxist-Leninist theory is that you have to have an analysis of power and how power congregates in movements. So anarchists have a critique of the state, right? 
And what it essentially says is that if you try to uh, create a communist society by using uh, the bourgeois state apparatus, uh, then you're essentially just going to create a new ruling class, the one that performs and perpetuates the state, rather than having the Marxist Leninist ideal of, you know, the the state just sort of withering away because it just goes away on its own because it's it's not needed anymore. Uh, instead, anarchism says that if you have a minor- minority of people creating communism through the state apparatus, then you're going to end up in a situation where the, the state apparatus essentially becomes self-perpetuating and the actions that go into producing and reproducing the state as a tool for creating communism uh, essentially creates the kinds of people who will tend to perpetuate those kinds of structures. So self-perpetuating, and there's also a criticism of the state. Yes. So it's trying to separate the ideas of Marxist-Leninist communism from the state. Yes. That maybe this idea is independent of the state. And we shouldn't try to do it by forming our new state to arbitrate it. Like uh, Marx said, uh, the state has to be smashed. So So anarcho-communism is then a pure form of that type of communism. Yes, you could say so. So would um, you say most anarchists are anarcho-communists or are there different types of anarchists as well? So anarcho-pack would would know this. uh, Anarchists adopted like anarcho-communism as the idea in like the 1870s or so. Would you consider anarcho-capitalists to be one of the anarchists or they're not true anarchists? I don't think they have uh, really an understanding of prefiguration or, or really anything that I would consider explicitly anarchist of any kind. What do you mean by prefiguration? Uh, what I mean is... Um, the idea that I was th- that I mentioned earlier that your mean means tend to show in your ends somehow, like uh, whether you intend to or not. So, in order to create the kind of society you want, where where people can self direct their activities and be free in various ways, you're you're going to have to build movements that are, you know, free, democratic, and less people engage in many different kinds of activity and, and stuff like that. So so I, I would say that's fairly fundamental to anarchism. And as far as I can tell, anarcho-capitalists don't really have any, any of that. So <laughs> Their system would just end up having a state anyway. It would just be initially starting as a private state. It would just become a monarchy because they would never open it up for the public to own into this state. So it's just going to go back to feudalism, monarchism again. Yeah. So, I mean, like the, the kinds of activities you engage in when, when you are doing capitalism tends up creating state-like structures, I would say. You know, like major corporations with engaging uh, private security companies and stuff like that. I don't see anything anarchist about it, but they're not going to stop calling themselves that. <laughs> In the early days of Left Book, which is around 2016, there was some interest in anarcho-communism. And then you started seeing kind of more a genesis of new groups where they started becoming more niche-based. 
like some left version of I don't know sports or left version of gaming or so there 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 was always a lot of different groups, but most of them were just like generic. So there were either like discussion groups or generic meme groups and uh, stuff like that, but they they weren't really special interest groups, as far as I can tell. So when did specialty groups like yours start popping up, or were you one of the earliest ones that you can remember? So you had like music groups and uh, uh, stuff like that, but I think we created Leftist Gaming Club in like 2017, maybe uh, around there, and at that time we we weren't really the first to do something like that, but we were sort of just getting tired of um, the whole discussion group thing because, well, for a lot of reasons. There was a lot of drama and uh, a lot of insular uh, discourse. Yeah, I I guess it was just getting old for me. Uh, So Leftist Gaming Club was created as kind of, by, by me and Eddie, as just kind of a retreat from all that. We we just wanted to use the experience we, we had modding uh, other leftist groups uh, to just create a space where people could talk about gaming and we could have like this minimal level of common understanding of what's okay and not okay and let people talk about gaming. So why form your own leftist gaming club instead of just joining pre-existing gaming groups? Uh, so the leftist component of it is fairly important. Uh, I think it's good to have explicitly leftist spaces for even not explicitly leftist things. Like, you know, this podcast is an explicitly leftist fighting podcast, plus plus. And um, it allows for a space where you can sort of explicitly put your foot down and say, we won't tolerate fascist dog whistles and stuff like that, which is something a lot of other spaces do accept because most people don't really identify them, which sort of creates a nasty environment long-term. So to keep the topic about gaming, then you have to make it explicitly leftist, right? It's a weird reality where if you just want to talk about gaming or for my example, combat sports, to keep it about that topic, you have to make it leftist because it's like, if you want to just talk about the subject, whatever the specialty interest is, and to keep out sexual politics or nationalism or racist politics or fascist dog whistling out and just make it about the thing, you need leftist mods, right? And they don't want to be moderating stuff all day and deleting stuff, right? So then for them to make their job easier and also more enjoyable, it makes sense then that they would only invite people to the group that would stick to the rules and not do those things. And those types of people also tend to be leftists. So it's almost like if you just think it out, how do I make a Facebook group just to talk about gaming and stick to that subject? It eventually evolves into a leftist space. It's an interesting dynamic. I think it has a lot to do with the way reactionary politics tend to be layered. Like I I mentioned dog whistles, right? Like the okay hand became like a a, a symbol of white supremacy and stuff like that. 
the people who know what's going on are sort of just like looking at each other and are sort of through that explicitly into it. While it's not really something most people, especially liberals, actually think about. So if you're not in a in an explicitly leftist space, you'll always have a very high level of tolerance for this kind of, oh, they're just joking around and they don't really mean it. And, you know, there aren't really white supremacists or fascists or Nazis anymore. Uh, so why are you creating a bad mood about, you know, somebody just messing around? It cre creates this kind of boys will be boys environment because it's it's always boys, right? And if you're in an explicitly lefty space, you don't have to really think about that. You just, you, you see the dog whistle and then you ask them to explain yourself if you're feeling generous. And if not, you just sort of boot them out. And if somebody complains, you just boot them out because that's not really what the space is about. It also makes it easier to content moderate because when you sign up or when you join the group, you know what it's about and what the rules are probably going to be like. So if you're being moderated, nobody's going to be screaming like, why? Like free speech, blah, 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 blah. They all kind of know, hey, you just did a dog whistle. And if you do stuff like that, or if you say something, I don't know, uh, racist or sexist or something that is just uh, could be considered hateful, of course, somebody's going to step in. Whereas if you, it was just a regular gaming group, there's probably going to be outcry every day <laughs> about somebody being moderated. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and we we don't really have to tolerate that shit. Uh, like if if you brought your racist uh, cousin uh, to the group and you love the heck out of him, but he's kind of a dumbass some sometimes. But blah blah blah, and you start telling stories about that. Like, we don't really give a shit because they're not supposed to be in the group. It allows us to, to sort of purge uh, efficiently. <laughs> and you said in the previous bigger groups that existed prior where it was more about discussion that a lot of times there might be kind of inner unrest where people are kind of arguing with each other or there's some drama, right? Yes. So do you find that with specialty groups there tends to be less drama because then it becomes about something else? Yeah. Uh, you know, uh, we've had our episodes, certainly. But it allows us to sort of say... Uh, Let's just talk about games. <laughs> yeah, we're, we're, we're really here to talk about games. So it makes it easier for you to control drama when it does appear. But secondly maybe drama is less likely to come up because you're really there not to talk about different versions of Marxism or communism or socialism. You're really there to talk about games. So that kind of uh, pivots people from topics that they might directly fight over. Yeah. I mean, people, people do try, right? But it lets us just shut all of that down. You know, I think uh, in the end, it's good for the group. Just having a different specialty, having a different interest on top of your political interests, it becomes another thing to bond over. So if we can't bond over this, at least we could bond over this other thing. 
Yeah, yeah, exactly. And uh, if you're sort of just only about leftist politics uh, in general, it, it very quickly tends to cannibalize itself. You're not a very fun person either. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's certainly true. Oh, you have no other interests? That's the only thing you're into? Okay. <laughs> well, yeah. <laughs> what other choice is there but to fight if you have two people and they're only into that one thing, right? Yeah, that's the only thing you talk about. As human beings, we should have like a lot of interests, right? Yeah. But as a person, if that's the only thing you care about ever, and then you're so passionate about that thing, you might find another person who's very opinionated about that thing, and there's nothing else that they could talk about in common, then eventually all there's going to be is fighting. Yeah, I, I think that's a very important component of it. It seems like it's still the early days of specialty groups because... You know, like if you look up certain other things within Left Book, there's like 50 just about Marx discussions, right? Yes, certainly. There's like hundreds that are talking about a socialist perspective of global warming. Yeah. You know, there's like these bigger ideological things. There's a lot of groups, but the specialty groups, I see new ones popping up all the time, but it's still kind of the early days, I feel like. Like, I was surprised there was none based around combat sports. Yeah. And so I formed one and then I looked one up to see if there was one about pro wrestling and I could only find one and it's still fairly a small group. Yeah. Even though I know there's a lot of people who are interested in leftist philosophy who like pro wrestling, they're just not aware of these groups yet, but it's because they're just starting. Yeah. Yeah. I think so. Uh, which is kind of odd, honestly, uh, like leftist gaming club has been growing steadily, but not nearly at the rate. Uh, some of the more conflict-oriented groups. <laughs> Are you trying to say people like the drama? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know what's funny is I invited a friend who's into all this into a couple of these groups, and after like three days, he left. And I go, why'd you leave? Because he always complains about this other group that he's in where there's constant fighting. That's why I invited him to these other groups where there isn't as much fighting. And he said, yeah, thanks for the invite, but these groups are boring. There's not enough drama. <laughs> so even though he's complaining about these other groups, he likes the drama. So he likes to read it every day. And it just kind of, I guess it's uh, the same reason why we watch TV drama. It's, there's some kind of entertainment factor to it. Yeah. If you're really heavily, heavily into left book somehow, it does become kind of a hobby, right? And I mean, there are stakes, you know, people are talking about very serious issues, uh, but people also tend to try to entertain themselves in what they do. <laughs> or uh, want to be entertained. Yeah, or want to be entertained, yeah. People write a lot of really weird shit. <laughs> <laughs> I have noticed on Facebook, within certain groups where they're not explicitly leftist, maybe they're more liberal. And when I say liberal, I mean social justice oriented, but still very much about capitalism and also maybe a lacking of any class consciousness. And with those groups that are specialty, I've seen them have much more people than the left book versions of them. Like even I've seen some other gaming groups that had a huge amount of people, but it does seem like if you don't have the socialist ideology behind it, some kind of class consciousness to it, it has even more infighting, <laughs> right? Yeah. Because what happens is Here's this thin sliced area of politics that I'll be very left on. All this other stuff I won't be. So that very thin slice becomes even more potent. Yeah. 
and then becomes even more of a powder keg for people to get angry over. And then it has like, I don't know, 50,000 people one day. And then you find out the next day the, the group has been closed. Yeah, there's a lot of that going on, certainly. It, I think it's good to, to ground it a little bit. So when you say grounded, you mean like being grounded in things that could help a lot of people or a total coherent political ideology, not an ideology that isn't grounded in reality. Like you can't have capitalism and utopia at the same time. Yeah. Yeah, for instance, right? So in your opinion, what is gaming culture like? Because the uh, stereotype tends to be that it has become more reactionary or that it it is its own kind of caricature or subset within conservatism. Now, is that stereotype warranted or you think that's maybe how it's portrayed in media, but it's not true? Well, I think I think it sort of suffers from a lot of the same problems that less explicit groups suffer from, like in general where if you have a, a group of guys playing video games, you'll always have the racist dipshit, <laughs> right? Uh-huh. And, and you'll have uh, the five guys that are like, you know, they're kind of progressive, uh, but yeah, like they know, they know that guy is kind of over the top, right? And they make excuses for that kind of behavior, right? Which exclude ends up excluding a lot of people. So you end up having spaces that are really hostile to to women and to trans people and to black people and so on, right? So I, I think that's pretty much correct. But but it's it's not correct in the sense that everyone who does gaming is a reactionary uh, bigot necessarily, but in that sort of apologetic, like enabling kind of way, I think it might be true. So for the sake of group gaming, right? We need five people to play this game. They become more apologetic for those things or more complicit in allowing it because of trying to maintain the gaming dynamic, the group dynamic. Yeah. Which creates a toxic space for this to start flourishing. Uh, I certainly think so. And then you do have certainly have a lot of people who identify with gaming a little bit too much. What do you mean by that? Like young men who maybe might not have so much going on, but play a lot of video games. Like the the kinds of people who think about themselves as gamers, right? Versus somebody who just happens to game. Yeah. Uh, and uh, like you, you certainly see that in in stuff like Gamergate and and stuff like that. You know, you you see a lot of people who think of gaming as you know it's it's what they do, it it's what makes them who they are, and it's like it's a safe space for them, right? It becomes an identity. It becomes an identity, which is why you can sell like butt ugly uh, racer gear and. And gaming, ga- gaming monitors with with like neon lights and stuff like that, <laughs> uh, right? And I think because of the group dynamics uh, I mentioned earlier, you're going to have a lot of lonely men uh, in those environments. And when you start seeing more representation in video games and stuff like that, 
then uh, these people start feeling attacked uh, for absolutely no fucking reason. And because of this sort of enabling of uh, reactionary politics in, in a lot of these spaces, I think rather than getting like shut down right away, which it would do in an explicitly leftist space, say, it tends to maybe be allowed to flourish and set root. Sounds like the same issues that exist that you were talking about earlier with Facebook groups where let's say you just start a gaming group and it's not explicitly political, but for the sake of group dynamic, you said people will be apologetic for their racist cousin or whoever, where they might not feel that way, but they're like, ah, he's just joking or he doesn't really mean it or, you know, just stop making it such a big deal. But then continuing to do that creates an atmosphere where, let's say I, I didn't visit this group for like six months and then I come back and that attitude continued. And so in six months, when I come back, it's like a straight up Nazi group. Yeah. But gaming culture doesn't have moderators where like, hey, <laughs> stop saying that. Yeah, sadly. So, I mean, it's the kind of thing that if you've ever been in those kinds of spaces, it's hard to really believe it when you're coming from the outside, maybe. You know, like, haha, you know, that racist guy, maybe he's racist, maybe he's not, maybe he's just joking, uh, posted a uh, the ironic swastika again, haha, you know. Nobody who's not a mega bro is going to stick, stick around for that. So it really is like a few bad apples can ruin the whole thing. Yeah, uh, I think so. If you allow them to keep being bad actors. Yeah, exactly. And and that's why you need to like really take a stand and decide what you're going to do. You need some principles. You need some principles, right. For those listeners who don't know, you mentioned Gamergate. What is that? It was, at its heart, just a really reactionary movement that had a surface level presentation of being about ethics in, in video game journalism. But what it ended up being about was harassing women in, in game publications and stuff like that. Yeah, it seems like people, they're more aware of the end result of it, what it became. Yeah, I think what it became is essentially what it always was. I couldn't give you like a, a super crisp uh, rundown of what went down, but it was really like it, it was about some woman being a a um, video game journalist, and some rumors started sparking about you know maybe they were just there because they slept with somebody, and it, it was that kind of deal. So like it was always really about the misogyny of gamer bros just sort of crystallizing into some conspiratorial stories about video game journalists uh, and uh, video game developers, uh, uh, most of them incidentally happening to be women. So <laughs> it was sort of always that. Because I think a lot of leftists who are not in the gaming world, right? They're just non-leftist gaming club people. I think a lot of them thought, oh, that was the thing that sparked the whole right-wing reactionary culture of gaming. But you're saying, no, that's not how it happened. It was more of a crystallization of what was already there. 
And in the grand scheme of things, it didn't accelerate anything. It just was heading that way anyway. Yeah, I think so. Like, it could really have been anything, right? And like, you have the whole Pizzagate thing, stuff like that. So it's not even something that really happened that could have sparked it. It could have just been one day, two people start coming up with conspiracy theories online about gamers and women, then that could have started it. It was like the right powder keg at that moment to just spark that. Yeah. And and you do kind of have like micro uh, reactions like that all the time, right? When Whenever uh, an Overwatch character turns out to be gay or whatever. <laughs> Those things always blow up because sort of the underbelly of the, well, at least parts of the gaming community uh, feels very strongly about these kinds of things. They think it's all some kind of conspiracy. Yeah, uh, because gaming is their thing, right? It's their identity. It's what they've been doing since they were kids. And uh, now, you know, the liberal agenda is ruining the only thing they have that makes them human. (laughs) I think it's just the surfacing of, of like, you, you you need to have that fundamentally misogynistic, quote-unquote, material basis. Like, you wouldn't spark that kind of fire without the right kinds of people to start it and keep it going. It seems like there's a pattern anyway, right? Around that time was also the time of Trump rising in popularity, right? So it's like the same thing, that Trump ignite something and it's like, no, he is the crystallization of something that was already there and a huge number of people that already existed. You could say that he's a symptom that makes the disease worse, right? There's some actual diseases where the symptoms make the disease worse. It's like a virus where it's spreading and then it causes these pockets of very bad flare-ups, but the flare-ups helps the virus spread even more. Yeah, I think that that's a good way of looking at it. Like, uh, I think a, l- a lot of people like uh, Steve Bannon and Milo and stuff like that, what they did, like, uh, I guess Philosophy Tube talks about this in, um, in one of his fairly recent videos where, like, the, 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 the arsonist, where it's like they're starting fires. But you wouldn't get a fire without something that's actually flammable to begin with. And um, gamers uh, happen to be flammable. (laughs) (laughs) I'm just putting that out there. So it sounds like a lot of our motivation of starting our groups is the same, where it's kind of uh, trying to compete against people who might fall one way. And it's like, okay, well, here's another option. If you like gaming, but you hate the reactionary shit, hey, now exists a space. And before that, there was no competition, so it was a monopoly. Yeah, and like, where would you go? Like, if you're a, a woman or or sound like a woman in, in a video game, like, it's really common not to turn on your microphone if you're playing a multiplayer game because you're going to get a lot of really bad attention. But if you can join up with people in a, in a space that's not just a bunch of bros together with their racist cousin. (laughs) You can start to build spaces uh, and people playing together that uh, are a bit less hostile to people who aren't racist. Or like, yeah, we're all a little bit racist, I guess. But but at least try to be better. Trying to be reformed racist. Yeah, right. 
So then what prevented you from becoming one of these toxic mega bros? I don't know. I've, I've probably been one at some point. Um, it's hard to say, but I think I've always been into leftist politics. So that wasn't some kind of political awakening that you had later on. It was something that was always your politics. Yes. Um, I think ever since high school, I, I've been explicitly leftist, uh, but, you know, without a lot of theoretical understanding and stuff like that, and, you know, I've learned over the years. Uh, so, I mean, it's been a development, but it's always been important to me. So then what happened in high school? So there was one guy in my class who was like, uh, he was an anarchist. It sort of got me thinking. Uh, and then I, I started reading about British royalty. And <laughs> I sort of realized that I really hated their guts. Uh, <laughs> so the more you found out about them and the more you learned about them, you just did not like that type of congregation of power. Yeah, it, it, it was just absolutely absurd to me. The divine right of king, that you are royal and the king because God placed you there. That didn't make sense to you. No, it, it's an absolutely absurd social re relation, right? And the idea that people are born in, into this kind of position, it's flabbergasting. And, you know, we have a king, like Norway is, uh, is a monarchy, right? <laughs> and, and it's just absurd. Like the royal family is just, uh, it's an absolute farce. Like, wh why do we have this? And, and people actually really like them, like 70% or so uh, think that, you know, we should totally have a fucking king and princess running around talking about angels. It's, uh, <laughs> it's absurd. Even Americans are enamored with the British royal family, right? They can't get enough of them. They want to read about them. Yeah, it's like um, tabloid, you know, celebrity magazines and stuff like that, like People somewhere love that shit, and I don't know where it's coming from, but... And you weren't like that, obviously. No, but I don't think that's... Um, I, I think most people aren't like that, at least like in, in this obsessive kind of way, but there is very clearly a market for it. <laughs> so reading about them made you start questioning class? Well... That sort of uh, explicitly socialist perspective came much later, I think. Uh, to me, then it was more about power in general, power in the abstract. It wasn't really about like all these formal institutional structures of people performing power in, in all sorts of strange ways I couldn't get a, a handle on and thought it was really weird and absurd and silly. So it was kind of one of the steps that you took then on your journey down the socialist rabbit hole, it was kind of one of the things that kept you going and searching and trying to understand what the hell is going on here. Yeah, absolutely. So that, that, was, that was the spark. And going to the videos that you're making, Red Plateaus, what is that? Uh, so it's a YouTube channel that I'm making together with uh, a friend of mine who uh, did his PhD uh, on Marx. He's an actual Marxist scholar then. Yes, he's an actual Marxist scholar. I met him through playing Dungeons and Dragons. <laughs> Wait, in real life, like tabletop style or online? Yeah, 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 in real life. Uh, Paul was part of that group. 
uh, turned out he was uh, very, very knowledgeable about Marx. And so eventually we started talking about, um, you know, a lot of the things that you're talking about when it comes to Marx isn't really all that well understood and isn't really talked about all that much on on YouTube or in left book groups or really anywhere else. Like most people don't seem to know this. People just sort of pick up some kind of surface understanding of uh, what Marx is through Lenin maybe. And then a lot of what I think are are some of the more interesting uh, things about Marxism or Marx isn't really there anymore or about Marx's thoughts, what kind of a character was he, what kinds of things were important to him, right? Uh, As a thinker, why did he write Capital? Uh, A lot of the the more fundamental aspects of that was kind of lost and not even uh, just lost, uh, actively kind of shunned. Like there's this idea in public understanding of Marx that uh, he had all these ideas that we talk about in the um, in the in our first series on Marx about uh, human development and freedom and uh, and alienation and uh, that this was kind of just early liberal Marx and he he just was just sort of uh, be- before he ca- became this sort of uh, dialectical materialist uh, powerhouse thinking about. A number of factories in in rural England or whatever. So Althusser gets invoked by a lot of people to say that all of those things in Marx are sort of uh, things he abandoned uh, in his later years or in his more mature years, like when writing Capital, etc. And isn't anything we should be focusing about uh, focusing on at all. And we wanted to sort of push back against that a little bit and figured that the best way of doing that was by making videos about it. That's how we ended up getting started and picking our focus. I I handled the the computer stuff and he uh, writes the script and records the raw audio and sends it to me and I do the editing and the, the video editing and uh, publication and uh, advertisement stuff. Yeah, he's the one who knows what we're talking about. (laughs) So he handles the philosophical side, the academic side. Yeah. You're handling the actual mechanics of the channel itself. So when it's the visual medium, when it's YouTube, it's not just about the curriculum or the stuff you're teaching. That's half of it. The other thing that we think of when we think of a YouTube channel is whether you want to or not, each channel has a certain aesthetic and a style, a video style. So that's mostly you, right? Yeah, he certainly gets to say. Because <laughs> one of the aesthetics you've already established, whether you meant to or not, is in some of the videos, it's you guys talking or him reading over just random videos of like Magic the Gathering, right? Oh, yeah. Or some other video game. So, um, I think I sort of stole that from Sean. Oh, he does that. Yeah, uh, for for Q and A videos and stuff like that, and updates and stuff like that. He, I think he tends to play Overwatch. 
So you took YouTubers that you enjoy and then you took some inspiration from them. Yeah, but I don't really play Overwatch, so I played Magic <laughs> the Gathering instead. So your aesthetic is whatever you're playing. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so I, I picked uh, a deck that I knew would uh, tend to create games that lasted about as long as the announcement lasts. <laughs> So in the video making, the creative process wasn't about the the video editing or the direction. It was more about deck card like selection. Yeah, <laughs> that's very important. Yeah. So uh, so I I picked the I picked the um, uh, what I guess uh, some Magic the Gathering players would call the cancerous deck, <laughs> uh, which is just a purely aggressive uh, deck. Uh, that just sort of smashes face and um, it creates short games. And it, it was a short announcement. So that was exactly what I needed. Because <laughs> a rookie would have picked the wrong deck and then would have yeah, ruined the exactly. whole video. Ended up, they just have a four minute announcement and then the, a 20 minute long match. <laughs> you could do that for uh, a bunch of other videos. You're like, okay, what deck am I going to use for this video? Yeah, like uh, for the for the Q and A of the first uh, season, I'm gonna I'm probably gonna play some um, some uh, legacy control magic. <laughs> there is a weird like subculture too, where there's people like I've seen people who do what you're talking about, where they talk over a video game. Yeah, and there's like a subset where there's people talking or referencing whatever you were talking about, and there's some who are just interested in watching the game while you're talking. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and that is the YouTube culture. That's the different culture you're getting into now. Yeah. One thing that's really important to us uh, is uh, keeping it fairly textual. Like a lot of people say uh, stuff about what Marx uh, thought and meant, and he's talked about more than he's actually read. So one thing that we do uh, very explicitly is use like direct quotes. And then we put that on the screen in the video. We don't have a lot of chaff for the most part. I mean, I I find myself going back and rewatching them quite a lot because I, I'm learning this stuff as well, right? My friends and I have a joke about certain popular podcasts where they talk to reactionaries and they talk for three to four hours, where if they actually fact-checked and whittled it down to his core true ideas and also removed all the advertising. Yeah. That four hour video would be 10 minutes. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So doing it the way you are on YouTube, you can't get away with doing a super long thing that meanders. You just have to get right to business. So that some people then it's like 10 minutes. uh, Let me watch it again so I could refresh myself. It's not that much of a cost. Whereas if you got to listen to a four-hour podcast again, it's like, eh, forget it. It's not worth remembering. Yeah, it allows us to create more focused um, content. Well, all right. This was a fun talk. So where can people find you? Uh, Red Plateaus on YouTube and um, R Plateaus uh, on Twitter. Uh, and we also have a Patreon. And then people can also find you at the Leftist Gaming Club. Yes, they could all, can also find me on, on Leftist Gaming Club, yeah. Uh, just don't invite your racist cousin. 
All right, man. Well, I know it's late over there, so I really appreciate you coming on. And uh, even after you just had your wisdom teeth pulled and everything. So you were really generous with your time. Thank you so much. Well, thank you for having me on. <laughs>